have questions about your health? A simple pill won't fix your problems. And there's so many points and opinions on the internet that a web search just leaves you more confused. So why not take the time and listen to those who know best? Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. Truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective right here and now. So let's bring it to your host, Dr. Jonathan Carp, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences. 1077 LeBron, 1077thebron.com, proudly nominated for National Association of Broadcasters 2019 Marconi Award for Best College Radio Station. We are broadcasting today from our remote Killarney's Public House Studios. Welcome to Rider University's Health 411. I'm Dr. Jonathan Karp, your host. The Rider University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411 truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective. The Rider University Health Studies Institute communicates cross-disciplinary perspectives affecting health, wellness, public health, healthcare policy, and the business of healthcare. I am in the studio today or recording remotely with the help of our producer, Antonia Conti, and our esteemed guest, Dr. Sophie Green. Dr. Green is a lecturer in the Department of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences at Rider. Welcome, Dr. Green. Hello. Thank you for having me, Carp. We are very, very excited to have you here today on the Health 411, and we are going to talk about, in, the, in a big global sense, um, exercise, uh, renal health, and cardiovascular health. Mm-hmm. And um, that is your area of expertise, and Dr. Green is a relatively newly minted PhD. So we're gonna hear a little bit about her research. We'll hear a little bit um, about exercise, uh, kidney function, kidney health, cardiovascular health, and we'll work in not to completely ignore what's happening in society with the coronavirus, but some of the things that she studies are directly related to how the coronavirus works. So Dr. Green, as a way to get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? All right. So I, um, growing up in academia, if you will, was an exercise science major as my undergrad. And then I got my master's in clinical exercise physiology, which is where I discovered that I preferred working with clinical populations rather than that more traditional kind of fitness background. So I continued um, to go on to my PhD at the University of Delaware. And my advisor actually was studying kidney disease So I always kind of thought we were going to be looking at the effect of exercise on the kidneys, but what he was really studying and what my research ultimately wound up being in his lab was looking at the effect of exercise on the blood vessels in kidney disease patients, because that's where exercise can ultimately have an effect. Uh, So while I was at the University of Delaware, I had an amazing opportunity with my advisor to actually run a clinical exercise program specifically targeted to kidney disease patients um, along the whole spectrum from stage three kidney disease, which is about moderate, um, all the way through dialysis and transplant patients. Uh, So it was a really unique opportunity during my PhD to actually put into play my master's degree, my exercise background, um, and create this awesome kidney disease exercise program. So it's kind of my background has always been exercise. I did take an entire summer to start working on the nutritional aspects of clinical populations. Um, I was gonna go get my RD before I got accepted into my PhD. 
So nutrition's always been really important to me as well. In my own, you know, personal time, I'm also a very avid paddleboarder and very big into exercise, kind of practicing what you preach. So it's a little bit about my background and kind of where I come from and my passion for kidney disease and really came working with the patients that I did at the University of Delaware. It was such an awesome opportunity to see how improved these patients' cardiovascular status was getting from exercise. More so than let's, let's take, let's how take happy a, they were. So you mentioned a lot of things here. So let's take a step back and put everything into perspective. So we, for, right. especially in the context of this Health for One Run radio program, you mentioned two things, and I want you to connect those two things because they often go together. Is what's happening in the kidney or with the kidney and kidney function and cardiovascular function? Now. Can you tell us what those things are and how they're connected? So essentially the role of your kidney is to filter your blood. So everything that you eat, everything that you drink gets into your system, through your digestive system, into your cardiovascular system. And the role of your kidney is that it's connected to your cardiovascular system. And as all of your blood gets pumped into the kidney, it's gotta filter out what your body doesn't need. So how is the role of the kidney then different than the role of the liver? So your liver's role is to detoxify things. So your liver takes things and changes the form of them, whereas your kidney's job is really to filter things out of your body and get rid of what you don't need. Okay, and so part of that is also the production of urine. Yep, that's the yep. big job of the kidney. It filters things and it makes urine. Okay, very good. So how is filtering things and making urine related to the cardiovascular, the, the blood supply and the heart and things like that? So one of the main things the kidney has to do is it has to help regulate our blood pressure and it has to regulate what's in our blood. So the kidney plays a huge role in making sure we don't have too much blood in our body because that increases blood pressure, which can be damaging to all different organs in your body. And it also makes sure that our blood has the right pH so that it's not damaging to our organs from a pH level either and maintains our acid-base balance. So the cardiovascular system's job is to pump blood all over our body and our kidney makes sure that the blood that's being pumped to our body is the right pH, there's not too much blood, and generally just helping maintain that homeostasis in our body between the two systems. Is it wrong to think that when something goes wrong in one of those systems, that it also goes wrong in the other one? Are they completely independent of each other? Or they're not. I'm, they're I'm trying very to draw connected. out that overlap. Yeah. Yep, there's a lot of overlap there. We tend to see that folks that have some sort of cardiovascular disease will end up with kidney issues um, and vice versa. Folks with kidney disease ultimately do wind up with a lot of cardiovascular disease issues as well. It may not be immediate. Um, it might take some time for those conditions to develop, but we do ultimately see that each system is going to affect the other. What is kind of nice if, when you look at the two systems is that if there is an issue with the cardiovascular system, sometimes the kidney can compensate and help a little bit and make that cardiovascular issue a little better. But sometimes when those issues become severe, they can also complicate those things. Uh, so for instance, after someone has a heart attack, sometimes the kidney overcompensates and the person can wind up with a lot of fluid retention, 
which can lead to some heart failure. So imbalance in one system can definitely affect the other system. Yeah, so definitely, they're definitely interconnected. Now, you know, knowing anatomy, one's heart is not in the same location as one, one's kidneys. So how do they talk to each other? So that's gonna be all through your blood vessels. So your blood vessels and your blood are what connect the cardiovascular system to the renal system. And so does that mean there are things in the blood that are signaling molecules um, that the kidney releases that have effect on what the heart does or the heart and the blood vessels release things that affect what the kidneys do? Absolutely. So. So please tell us about some of those things. So we have a system in our body called the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, uh, which is a very fancy name for what we normally refer to as the Ross system. And essentially what the kidney does is when it senses that there's too much salt in your blood or when it senses that we have too high of a blood volume, it sets off a hormone cascade that actually helps us regulate our blood pressure as well as the sodium that's within our blood or our salt, however you want to think of it. And then our heart can also release some substances. And what my doctoral research primarily looked at is what was released by the blood vessels to help the blood vessels um, relax and dilate to control the pressure within the blood vessels. Yeah, and we certainly want to get to what's happening with these, this system during exercise, but I want to be complete here and I want to, can you tell us a little bit about the names of some of these signaling molecules that are part of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system um, because they're going to be important not only for what we're going to talk about in terms of exercise, but some of those things are actually related to what's happening now with SARS. Yes. So we have um, the, essentially what happens is in our kidneys, we have very tiny units called a nephron, and these are what we call the functioning unit of the kidney. And what they do is they're going to sense all the different pressure changes and then all the different chemical changes within your blood, like your pH, all your different electrolytes. And what happens is there's a certain area called the macula densa, which is where a piece of our nephron touches the beginning, kind of the end of the nephron touches the beginning. And when it senses a drop in pressure or a change in volume and then when it senses that there may be too much salt in the blood, it actually starts off this cascade by releasing renin, which then sets off the whole cascade within um, the system, ultimately resulting in angiotensin 2, which is I'm sure what you're referring to because it is connected to um, the coronavirus and how that functions. And we see that you know this whole system ultimately results in reducing the amount of Potassium that's in your blood is one of the main goals, and the way that we do this is by sodium retention. So we have extra salt that we're keeping in with our kidneys, so we're maintaining the sodium content within the blood by flushing out extra potassium at our kidneys. And then we're also increasing water retention. Um, so a lot of times when someone's dehydrated, this gets sent off. Um, so what happens is we maintain extra fluid in our body because we've been signaled that our blood volume was low. So we want the kidneys to make less urine and maintain as much fluid within our body as we can. Excellent. Unfortunately, we'll have to cut this biology lesson a little bit short to take some brief underwriting announcements. We'll be right back with Dr. Green. You are listening to Health 411 on 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com.
A dose of knowledge a day keeps a doctor away. Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. And back with your daily dosage is Dr. Jonathan Carr, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com. We are remote from the remote Killarney's Public House Studios, and you're listening to Health 411. I'm Dr. Jonathan Karp, remotely in our studios today with Antonia, our producer, and Dr. Sophie Green, who is a, in the Department of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences at Ryder University. At the end of the last segment, Dr. Green was telling us a little bit about something called the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. And that basically is a way that your kidneys connect with your blood supply, your vasculature, your kidneys release a hormone called renin. It, it interacts with a hormone that from, comes from your liver called angiotensinogen, and it makes things called angiotensin 1 and angiotensin 2. And she was telling us about how a little bit about that angiotensin 2 does things like um, is involved with sodium retention, salt appetite, retention of water, parts of other parts of the system. But we don't want to do too much like biology lesson here. We want to go into Dr. Green's sweet spot before we expand out of that. And one of the things that Dr. Green studies in her own research and in her interest is exercise. Exercise is something that well, why don't you tell us, Dr. Green, tell us, what does exercise do to the systems that we're studying? When an exercise physiologist studies exercise, first, why don't you operationally define that for us? What do you mean? What do I mean by exercise? Yeah, what is exercise? So, a lot of people get confused by the idea of physical activity versus exercise. Uh, so, physical activity is anything you do where you get up during the day and you move around. Um, so getting up and using the restroom, just getting up off the couch, walking to the car, anything that's your body moving is physical activity. Exercise is something that's specifically done for recreational purposes or to try and improve like your, you know, your physical fitness. So exercise can range from somebody just going for a walk, someone that maybe gets up and runs an ultra marathon. It could be weightlifting, HIIT training, um, which is high intensity interval training any type of movement for your body. And there's a very wide range of exercise that can be beneficial uh, for somebody to just get up and walk 10, three 10 minute bouts of exercise per day. That's enough to get health benefits. Um, whereas if somebody really wants to have, you know, a body composition change, they want it to help them lose weight. That's where we need to see, you know, longer amounts of exercise going on. But exercise is pretty much any movement that's of outside of your physical activity range. So getting up and, you know, choosing to put on those sneakers and say, this is exercise. Um, but it can be anything from walking to running to cycling. There's a very wide range of things that are exercise. And what, in a global sense, and we'll get into this, what does exercise do, especially to kidney function? I can understand how it's influencing my heart and exercise movement, the resistance might make my skeletal muscles a little bit more toned or something, you can tell, right? So what does this thing you're calling exercise have to do with one's kidneys? So the effect of exercise on the renal system is primarily by making the cardiovascular system stronger. So this is a pretty big misconception that we had with a lot of patients that joined our program. They assume that their kidney function or what we call their glomerular filtration rate or GFR, 
was going to get better with exercise. And that's not really the case. Um, it's not necessarily the actual kidney that's going to get better with exercise. It's mostly, like you mentioned, the cardiovascular system that will improve. Uh, so the heart can get stronger. All the muscles in your body get stronger. Yeah, so you mentioned really this weird. thing called glomerular filtration rate. What do you mean by that? So at the very beginning of your tiny nephrons that we talked about, which fun fact, you have like millions of nephrons in your body, but at the beginning- But they're, but they're of your, all in your kidneys are all in the kidneys. Yeah. <laughs> um, so at the very beginning, you actually have a very small bulb at the beginning of your nephron, and it's called your glomerulus. And this is where the cardiovascular system actually meets our nephron. So we have essentially just a, a little ball of capillaries, which are very, very tiny blood vessels. And this is where our kidney actually creates what we call filtrate, which is where our blood is being filtered into the nephron to get filtered to make urine or to ultimately wind up, you know, back in the blood. Uh, so what our GFR is, or our glomerular filtration rate, is essentially how much blood is going into this glomerulus to be filtered by the kidney. Uh, so with kidney disease, we see that folks have a damage to these glomerulus and they ultimately have damage to their nephrons and they lose those nephrons and they can't filter anymore. So the way that we track that is by looking at their GFR. So in a normal healthy person, you'll see a GFR usually above 120 milliliters per minute. Um, and some folks with kidney disease that's severe before they go on dialysis, it can get as low as five milliliters per minute. Now, is that, um, does that mean, that's, is that the amount of blood that actually is going through the kidney per unit time? Yep, so that's and, exactly what it is. And so the idea is, theoretically, if everything's working, as blood pressure goes up, your heart pumps more blood, your glomerular filtration rate would also increase. And as blood pressure came back down, the glomerular filtration rate would decrease. In theory, but we actually, our kidneys like to regulate how much blood is coming in and out of them. So they're very careful to try and maintain a GFR that's similar, whether it's during exercise or with somebody that has hypertension. They try to maintain the same GFR as much as possible. So the blood vessels in the kidney can actually dilate and constrict to help themselves maintain that GFR at the same rate. Because when the GFRs gets you know out of control and there's too much pressure in the kidney that's how the nephrons can actually get damaged damn it so is that part of sometimes you hear the word baroreceptor is that part of what you're talking about it is part of it the kidneys can sense pressure and they're then going to adjust um, in response to that pressure so the baroreceptors can sense what the pressure is going to be yeah. and so what if somebody has what you're you know you're calling Kidney disease, in the context of how you just described it, what is, is kidney disease the inability to filter or is it the inability to adjust filtration rate? What is, what is kidney disease? So when someone has kidney disease, it means that they've damaged their kidney and some of their nephrons and portions of their kidney are no longer functional. So they can't do any sort of filtration. They don't have blood flow to that portion of the kidney anymore, they lose what we call functional mass. So pieces of their kidney have become damaged and we can no longer, you know, blood can no longer enter that and be filtered because that piece of the kidney is dead, essentially. Um, it becomes fibrotic and it can't filter anymore. So when somebody has kidney disease and we see a drop in GFR, 
It's because they've had a loss in this functional renal mass of the kidney that can no longer filter anything. Okay, and so let's bring that back to exercise. And I apologize, I cut you off a little bit, but I just, want, I just wanted to step back and set it up. Why is exercise then important for kidney function? So again, it's not so much that exercise is important for kidney function overall, it's more so the effect that it has on the cardiovascular system is more so what we're interested in. So I know a lot of folks that came into our program, they said, you know, oh, I'm excited, my GFR is gonna go up for exercising. And I, you know, we had to tell them like, that's not exactly what's going to happen. What you're gonna see is that your cardiovascular system, so your heart and your blood vessels are going to get stronger. Your muscles are gonna get a lot stronger. So we're able to reduce cardiovascular issues that you're having, and that's going to improve the way your body functions overall, um, but it's not really tied to renal function specifically. And we have two of these things. We have two kidneys. We do. We do. Why? Why, why can't we just have one? Our body really likes to have spare parts. <laughs> um, so we can actually live and function with about one-sixth of one kidney. We could filter everything we needed um, and, you know, survive with that. But at the same time, our body likes to have, you know, more than it needs. So we have two kidneys essentially to kind of be like spare parts for each other. So we've got much more filtration power than what we really need. So we have two kidneys and have a lot of, I'm trying to think of exactly how I want to phrase this. Essentially, we have more filtration than we need. So we have a lot of extra nephrons and a lot of extra functional kidney tissue. Um, so that way, if we lose some of it, we can still survive, which is why people are able to donate a kidney to somebody with kidney mm -hmm. disease. Um, we call that a live donor, or somebody can give their kidney to someone else and they can be just fine and they might not even see a drop in their GFR because their body has this extra kidney and kind of like spare parts. Yeah, and if we were talking about evolution, we would say it's one of the great adaptation to being a terrestrial animal, being able to yep. do this. We are going to take a quick break for some underwriting announcements. You're listening to Health 411 on 107.7 The Bronx and 107.7thebronc.com. And we'll hear more, especially about Dr. Green's research when we come back. From healthcare to the environment around us and everything in between, Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. Dr. Jonathan Carr, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences, is here expanding your knowledge and perspective. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com. We are recording from the remote Killarney's Public House. Welcome back to Health 411. I'm Dr. Jonathan Karp in the studio with Dr. Sophie Green talking about kidney function, connecting it to exercise. And that's a great segue because we want to hear a little bit about her research. We talked a little bit about what the kidneys do and what they do not and how they respond to what's happening in the bloodstream. So Dr. Green, can you tell us a little bit about your research that you're interested in? So. I'm going to first talk a little bit about my doctoral research, just because uh, it pertains more so to kidney Absolutely. Disease. So what I looked at during my doctoral work um, with my advisor, Dave Edwards, was really looking at the connection between the blood vessels and what we call endothelial dysfunction. Um, so we know that cardiovascular disease and kidney disease are very highly tied to each other. And 
you know, about 66% of patients that have kidney disease also have cardiovascular disease, but only about 33% of the general population actually has cardiovascular disease. So there's this much higher incidence rate of cardiovascular disease in kidney disease patients. And what has found to be the link is what's called endothelial dysfunction. So what, what are endothelial cells? They're a type of cell. What are they? So endothelial cells are going to be a monolayer of cells that line the inside of your blood vessels. And so does that mean that these are the cells that are responsible for taking things out of the blood into a target organ or something else? They can. So um, capillaries are actually going to be um, just a single monolayer of endothelial cells with big fenestrations that things can move through, such as red blood cells to give oxygen and everything. I'm sorry, red blood cells don't move through the fenestrations. Oxygen just gets diffused. But one of the very important roles of these endothelial cells is they can produce what we call vasoactive substances. And so a vasoactive substance would be something that can actually cause a change, like you said, in a target organ. And what we were primarily interested in was the smooth muscle of the vascular, or the vascular smooth muscle cells, which are the muscle cells within your blood vessels. So what we wanted to look at was the effect of certain substances that are in the blood during kidney disease that are not able to be filtered by the kidney, and how they were impacting the ability of these endothelial cells to produce one very important vasoactive substance called nitric oxide, which is what actually causes dilation of the blood vessels, which can help control blood pressure because it makes the blood vessel bigger and decreases blood pressure. So when a blood vessel expands and contracts, that's because the smooth muscle that is surrounding that vessel is either relaxing or just constricting. And what I'm hearing is that there's a molecule called nitric oxide that is responsible for that, or at least the vasodilation. Of the vessel. Yeah, so nitric oxide is very important when we talk about um, dilation of the blood vessel, but that's what it does within um, the vascular smooth muscle cells. But in the blood itself, it's actually responsible for preventing things from getting sticky and sticking to the endothelium or sticking to each other. So it also plays a huge role in what we call atherosclerosis, which is where you get plaques building up on the inside of arteries. So nitric oxide plays a lot of different roles within the blood vessel. So we looked primarily with my research at the effect of nitric oxide, not on the vascular smooth muscle cells, but how it was produced um, and the effect that kidney disease has on reducing nitric oxide production and causing what we call endothelial dysfunction, which is where the endothelial cells can't produce enough nitric oxide and they don't, they don't kind of do their job, so they can't help the blood vessel dilate quite as much, which affects blood pressure, and ultimately can contribute to atherosclerosis and cardiovascular disease in kidney patients through hypertension, or we can have an increase in atherosclerosis with patients, um, so they have an increase in plaque buildup in their arteries as well. So if endothelial cells are making nitric oxide, what's their signal to make it? Exercise can be a huge signal for making nitric oxide. <laughs> um, so what we actually looked at in my studies at the University of Delaware was we actually cultured endothelial cells and we applied shear stress to them because shear stress is an important component of exercise when we talk about blood vessels. What do you mean by shear stress? Hmm? What, what do you mean by shear stress? 
So shear stress is actually the force that blood exerts on the endothelial cells as it flows past them. Okay, and so, so this, this, so shear stress is actually, it's sort of a physical term, it's like from physics, whereas it's potentially changing the pressure on the cells, the dynamics or moving it, is that what you're sort of saying? It's not so much the pressure, it's there's, um, it's just a shear force, so essentially the cells are, we call it shear stress, because it's a stress that's being exerted on the cells, and they're just the top of the cells or the side that's facing the blood vessel is getting sheared. And there's different molecules that sit on the edge of the endothelial cell that sense that shear stress. So the cells are under constant shear stress because our blood is always flowing. So there is a small degree of shear stress over our endothelial cells at all times, which is why they are constantly producing what we call a basal amount of nitric oxide, so just a normal amount of nitric oxide that's regularly being produced. But when you have someone exercise, the shear stress increases over the endothelial cells, and it's a known stimulus for nitric oxide that in if you exercise, you have this increased shear stress, and we have a huge increase in nitric oxide production so that our blood vessels can dilate and we can get more blood around our body during exercise. But um, when we're talking about blood vessels dilating, are we talking primarily arteries or veins? Um, so these are going to be arteries. I'm thinking of varicose veins. Is that not what we're talking about here? No, this is something that primarily goes on in the arteries because arteries are what's going to control our blood pressure. Our veins don't really have uh, blood pressure per se. I know that sounds kind of strange. But our arteries are what's going to control our blood pressure. This is where when they take your blood pressure at the doctor or if you're um, measuring it at home, your blood vessel is measured in your arteries because the heart pumps all of the blood out and it creates pressure within the arterial system. Once the blood has gotten to our veins, the stimulus or like that pressure that we got from the heart has decreased from the heart all the way down into what we call the capillaries. So we go from very big vessels, arteries, right outside the heart and they get smaller and smaller until they get down to the tissue level in what we call capillaries. And this is where we have the diffusion of oxygen so that all of our tissues in our body can get enough oxygen. And then the blood flows into our venous system. And this venous system has very low pressure. It's essentially just like a tube that we're just pushing blood through to get back up to the heart. So there's almost no pressure in our venous system. So what we were looking at with these endothelial cells being very vasoactive was primarily in the arterial system. That's where it's of most importance. And so why is it important, getting back to the, the big question of exercise, that the arterial system be able to contract and expand? Can you connect that importance to exercise? Yep. So we need our arteries to expand and contract to control our blood pressure to keep blood flowing through the entire system. Uh, so if somebody, you know, has too much vasodilation and their blood pressure drops and they're not getting enough blood to their brain, if you're not getting enough blood to the rest of your body, um, you don't have enough oxygen and then your body can't function. So, so it's, not all, very it's not all about the heart just pumping faster or harder. There's also this, the size of the the pipes which it pumps through also change. Right, so we can change, um, like as you said, like the size of the pump so we can dilate and contract our blood vessels to control pressure so that we don't have to work our heart too much. 
because you don't want to overwork your heart that can lead to heart failure. Um, so yeah, we can control our blood pressure um, at what we call the local level by controlling the size of the tube and increasing or decreasing the pressure at the vessel level. And is this sort of what exercise does? Exercise can help us control blood pressure um, because essentially when we exercise, we have that increase in shear stress and it increases nitric oxide in our blood and that nitric oxide helps us dilate our blood vessels. Um, so we see a lot of folks that maybe have high blood pressure. Exercise is very beneficial for helping their blood vessels control their blood pressure better, whether it's during exercise or especially within the 24 hours post-exercise, most folks are gonna have better blood pressure control overall. Uh, so nitric oxide plays a huge role in that. There are tons of different substances that exercise helps release, um, different cytokines and everything that can change. Um, so we won't get into that. Um, but nitric oxide, because the cells experience that increase in shear stress and they think it might happen again, essentially the cells continue producing more nitric oxide so that they can handle that increase in pressure from exercise again. Yeah, and so what you mentioned in, in context is that's important not only for the dilation um, and I guess the, the constriction, but also helping preventing things from sticking together in the blood, and that's good too because it helps prevent strokes and um, infarctions and other things like that. We will continue this conversation after some brief underwriting announcements. You are listening to Dr. Sophie Green on Health 411 on 107.7 The Bronx and 107.7thebronc.com. A dose of knowledge a day keeps a doctor away. Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. And back with your daily dosage is Dr. Jonathan Carr, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com. We are recording from the remote Killarney's Public House Studios. Welcome back to Health 411. We are in the studio today talking about exercise kidney function with Dr. Sophie Green from the Department of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience and Health Science at Ryder University. And as part of our conversation, I want to connect some of the things about kidney function and exercise that Dr. Green is talking about with some of the things that are happening in our society right now. Um, for example, the reason we're having to record remotely is because we are all social distancing as part of the coronavirus uh, pandemic that's happening in New Jersey, in the United States, and worldwide. And so I want to connect some of the things we're talking about to some of the things that are happening because it's, it, this is sort of interesting. We talked a little earlier, or we, Dr. Green, talked a little earlier about the connections between the heart and the kidney, um, how these, thing, these, these two organ systems sort of work together to regulate blood flow and glomerular filtration rate. But what's also interesting about physiology is it's not that this axis between the heart and the kidneys is isolated. The lungs are also part of this. And they, some of the molecules that are part of the, Dr. Green is nodding her head, is some of, so some of the molecules that are part of the communication between the heart and the kidneys are also used by other organs in the body, for example, the lungs. And Dr. Green was talking about something called the renin-angiotensin system. And one of the enzymes that's involved in the renin-angiotensin system is a molecule, it's a protein, it's an enzyme that's also involved um, with normal lung function. 
This is interesting for a couple reasons. One of them is getting to the current events that are happening is the SARS virus, the SARS-2, the novel coronavirus, the way that it enters the body is through an angiotensin-converting enzyme 2 receptor. That's a fancy way of saying that's one of the molecules that's shared. It's sort of the, the renin-angiotensin system, part of that is renin from the kidney um, interacts with angiotensinogen from one's liver, and it makes something called angiotensin 1. That angiotensin 1, to have effect of target tissues, is converted into something called angiotensin 2. The enzyme that does that is angiotensin-converting enzyme. Um, and, and there's different forms of it. And angiotensin-converting enzyme 2 um, has multiple effects. One of the things that it can have is it can bind to a receptor on target cells. And I just want to connect that because this is a receptor that the virus uses to enter the lung cells because these lung cells have that receptor there. Um, and I think that's an interesting connection. It's interesting showing biology about the same molecules can be co-opted in different parts of the body to do different kinds of things. And one of the things that we, we know happens is angiotensin II uh, enzyme inhibitors or receptor blockers are already used in clinical medicine to treat some of the things that Dr. Green was talking about, like high blood pressure that's already out there. And so I'm trying to lead you along, Dr. Green. Can you see, can you finish my story or work with this story? Sure. Yeah, so a lot of what I've read about are the main complications of somebody that has acquired the coronavirus and gets what they call COVID-19, which is the disease caused by the coronavirus, is that they wind up with an acute respiratory infection. So essentially what happens is this renin angiotensin aldosterone system that we've been talking about starts, you know, kind of gets kicked on in overdrive and folks have huge buildups of fluid in their lungs. And because of that fluid buildup in their lungs, they can't have oxygen transported in. So when you breathe in air, your lungs actually extract the oxygen from that air and they give off the CO2 that's been in your body. And that's very important for us to make sure we can get oxygen into our body. Uh, so what happens is with folks that have COVID-19, and this renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, like we said earlier, when it's kicked up, it helps with fluid retention, which is important when you're dehydrated or you don't have enough um, fluid in your body. But when it's working in overdrive, and it's what we would call pathological, essentially you start building up fluid when you shouldn't. Um, so what happens with COVID-19 is folks actually have fluid that builds up in their lungs, which is very similar to what we see with folks that have pneumonia and why pneumonia is so dangerous. So when you have this buildup of fluid in your lungs, you can't breathe and you can't exchange oxygen. Uh, so that's one of the major issues. And there's a pretty, you know, high incidence of this kind of pneumonia in COVID-19. I don't know the exact numbers and I don't want to pretend I'm an expert on it. But that's um, one of the reasons ventilators are such a big deal now is because mm -hmm. people who are infected with the virus or a certain percentage of them, albeit small, but a certain percentage of them, their lungs, their immune response happens in their lungs. They can't remove the fluid. You have a buildup of immune cells there and these people can't breathe. So they have to be put on ventilators. And that's what one of the things that uh, um, is a political issue and a sh short supply for people, and it's related to the system that that you know we've been talking about 
um, for these segments. But there's also some interesting research coming out, also connected to the exercise aspect of what we're talking about. Yes. So from what I understand, from what I've been reading, is that, you know, the COVID-19 is causing a lot of free radical damage in the body. And exercise has been known to increase some antioxidants in the body. Uh, There's an interesting article that came out um, from VCU talking about how acute bouts of exercise can actually help with um, by increasing what we call extracellular superoxide dismutase. So I'm sure you're familiar with the term of an antioxidant. Uh, so this is an antioxidant, and it's endogenous to our body, which means we produce it. Well, for our listeners, can you just tell us what an antioxidant is? So our body, we can have what are called free radicals. So these are small, tiny molecules that can damage your cells. Um, so we can have them from a variety of different environmental factors. Uh, smoking is a big one. Um, there's lots of different processes that increase these free radicals in our body. And what an antioxidant is, is it's a substance that come in and it gets rid of these free radicals. And at the molecular level, what it's actually doing is it comes down to electrons. So a free radical is unstable and your antioxidant comes in and gives it a electron to make it stable and then it can't damage your cells anymore. Uh, so that's why antioxidants are really important. And what we overall call this process is oxidative stress and oxidative damage. And our body has a number of different systems meant to you know, overcome these free radicals in our body. So when we're not overly bombarded with them, they're in a balance and we can handle it. But when we have something that causes an imbalance in the number of free radicals versus antioxidants in our body, that's when our cells can start to get damaged. And so bring it back to our discussion of exercise and the consequences of coronavirus infection. So from what I've been seeing, the idea is that exercise increases some of these antioxidants in our body. So folks that do exercise, even if it's just an acute bout of exercise, or even if you were to start exercising now, just going for a socially distanced walk, staying away from everybody else, it's going to increase some of these antioxidants in your body and it can help combat the free radicals that can be in your body from the coronavirus or from COVID-19. And it might help protect you from some of the acute respiratory issues that come along with COVID-19. I think that's really important to point out because one of the things that happens with the social isolation that we're all doing is our normal routines are disrupted. And for a lot of people, those normal routines include going to the gym, walking up and down the stairs at work. And a lot of those routines are um, active kinds of things that might be considered exercise. And um, I mean, people have become fearful of going outside, even going shopping. People might not walk around the mall, actually can't walk around the mall. The malls are closed. (laughs) (laughs) They're all closed. Um, And so this becomes really important because, you know, just, you know, reminding people that it's important to move, it's important to exercise um, for not just the cardiovascular health or kidney health, but if you are infected with the virus, the potential exists that exercise may help your body prevent some of the damage related to what the virus does. Did I, did I, did I sort of capture that? 
He did. I think the my takeaway for everyone right now is from be, you know, stay social distance, but getting out and exercising right now could prevent uh, some of this severe acute respiratory issues that come along with the COVID-19. So, and it all comes down to antioxidants. And there is not evidence that eating antioxidants, because you can get them from food like vitamin C or a lot of folks like to say red wine can give you antioxidants. Um, it's specifically what I've read are these exercise antioxidants. It's called extracellular superoxide dismutase. Um, that can actually help combat these free radicals. Um, so folks that exercise regularly, even if it's just going out for a walk, like exercise doesn't have to be, I go to the gym and I run 10 miles on the treadmill uh, or I you know, become a bodybuilder. It could just be going outside staying socially distanced from everyone, um, and getting a good walk-in. Excellent. Unfortunately, we are running out of time. The 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com. We are recording from the remote Killarney's Public House Studios. Thank you for listening to Health 411. This program is part of the Ryder University Health Studies Institute's efforts to bring people together to address issues associated with all aspects of healthcare. I hope today's program has helped inform you about exercise, renal and cardiovascular health, and we've actually connected these to what's happening with the coronavirus. I'd like to thank our esteemed guest, Dr. Sophie Green. Thank you, Sophie, from the Department of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience and Health Sciences. You are a great guest. If you have questions and or comments about this program or the Health Studies Institute at Rider, please email us at health411 at rider.edu. Thank you for taking the time to listen to your health with Health 411. Dr. Jonathan Karp is here from Rider University's Health Studies Institute every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information about the Health Studies Institute's programs, call 609-896-5093. That's 609-896-5093. Or find their webpage on rider.edu under Academics and Academic Programs. Be sure to tune in every week to expand your knowledge and perspective. And don't forget to stay healthy.